This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Hello, how are you today? If you grow barley, then during your next crop inspection, you do need to be on the lookout for a genetic mutation. It's known only as F129L, and it's been detected in barley leaf samples in Australia for the first time. That was over the border in South Australia, but it could have been present for a while now, so you do need to keep an eye out for that. We'll give you some more detail shortly here on the Country Hour. Also today, researchers at Murdoch University are trying to work out why milk from one dairy farm is more nutritious than others from WA's southwest. We suspect it's that the cows don't produce a huge volume per day. That's how they manage the cow's health and, and the milk quality and things like that. So that could be a factor. The low, slow pasteurisation is certainly a factor in protein, but we still have more work to do to kind of try and find out the why these milks are different. You'll hear all about that research just after half past 12 today here on the Country Hour. Six past 12 on the ABC right across WA and on the ABC Listen app. $20 million every year. That's how much Australian grain breeders miss out on in unpaid endpoint royalties every year. Now, an endpoint royalty is that fee that's paid on every tonne of grain produced and sold by grain growers. And the money goes back to plant breeders to work on new and improved varieties for the future. Tress Wormsley is Chair of Australian Crop Breeders. She says the system works well, but would be even better if everyone paid up. Our endpoint royalty system is actually the envy of many of our competitor countries. And you're right, we've been going now for uh, a solid 20 plus years. It's a fantastic value capture system and it has actually allowed particularly the transition of wheat and barley breeding into the commercial sector to the point where our wheat and barley breeding programs that operate in Australia now are fully reliant on their endpoint royalty revenue. So we don't receive state government or federal or GRDC funding for our wheat and barley programs anymore. And all basically all new varieties that are developed uh, now attract an endpoint royalty in the open crop pollinated section. And I think that's also a testament that the improvement and the level of new varieties that are coming out into the Australian marketplace really demonstrates the success of the program. It is not 100% foolproof though. There is some gaps. How much money do you estimate that the plant breeding industry misses out on each year because those royalties go unpaid? We do have some endpoint royalty compliance challenges and recently we have been uh, having some discussions with the grower organisations and particularly those on the East Coast because what we actually are aware of is that there's quite in inequity uh, with endpoint royalty compliance in Western Australia versus some of the East Coast states. And so the 
Australian crop breeder members. Uh, we, we developed recently a response to a IP Australia reform review that they were looking at. And in an average year, the MPONT royalty compliance gap can sit at around $20 million. So that's $20 million of lost revenue for the plant breeders that we're then not able to invest back into our plant breeding programs. That's every year. Yes, it is. Well, that, that's an average calculation. So give or take, it can go up and down. And then, you know, what we're aware of is that there are hotspot areas where we need to do a little bit more of an education and and we've been really focused on selling the value that plant breeding brings to the growers. How does it happen, Trez? Is it intentional or unintentional? There's a range of ways that we have compliance issues. The best case is like Western Australia. So because we're an export market uh, focused and we have a smaller number but larger grain traders operating, who are all supportive and participating of the auto-deduct system. And, and we get very persistent and constant feedback from the growers that that is their preferred method for paying their endpoint royalty. As we move to the East Coast, it's more focused, as we know, on domestic milling and livestock. And so there are a much larger number of smaller um, traders participating in that market. And at times we find it challenging for some of those smaller traders and, and players to participate in the auto-deduct system. And that's our holy grail. That's where we want to get to. We really want to get to the point where basically all of the crop that is owed an endpoint royalty happens via the auto-deduct system. And why we're very, I suppose, focused on trying to move to that long-term position is that we know that growers really loathe doing their annual harvest declaration paperwork. And so if we could have a much larger portion of the crop, particularly on the East Coast, collected through this auto-deduct system, we can start to look at not having to have that annual declaration process in place. What impact, Trest, does $20 million being lost out of the system have for Australian growers? I think what we're seeing is one of the easiest ways to explain it, and this is actually a benefit for the West Australian grower, is that plant breeders probably starting to become a little bit reluctant about having well-resourced big breeding programs in those high compliance issue areas. So, for instance, Intergrain has a larger program for Western Australia than it does for northern New South Wales and Queensland in its wheat breeding program. And one of the reasons driving that is because our return on investment is actually more supported in Western Australia. The other thing is that that lost revenue, we're starting to see that some of our Australian crop breeder members are starting to say that they're finding it hard to get R&D budgets approved. They're being asked to look at where they're allocating their resources. Ultimately, your endpoint royalty funds your next generation of plant breeding and the varieties. Some of those investments are very long-term. So for a plant breeding cycle, it takes eight to 10 years to bring a new variety out. We have very long R&D investment cycles. 
but some of those I suppose are starting to deliver for instance many of the plant breeding companies are now moving into what I would call market failure crops so we're all starting to look at breeding for pulse crops which I think is a fantastic opportunity for the growers um, we're moving into new markets so for instance that might be the soft wheat breeding program so intergrain long reach and um, agt have all commenced a soft wheat breeding program so that's new markets for growers and then there's like new technology so like intergrain's got a gene editing program that we're operating so the adoption of new technologies all going to basically feed back to the next generation of varieties that's chair of australian crop breeders and the ceo of intergrain tress wormsley with Lucinda Joyce. 13 past 12 on the text. Mark from Williams wants to know if compliance can be improved and they can collect more of that $20 million. The endpoint royalties can be reduced so WA growers who are almost 100% compliance bear a less disproportionate burden. I will have to ask Tress about that next time she's on the program. Thanks for that, Mark. The text is 0448 922 past 12. Well, barley growers need to be on the lookout for a genetic mutation known only as F129L, which has been detected in barley leaf samples in Australia for the first time. Chemical company BASF Australia says the samples were collected during a product trial on the York Peninsula in South Australia last year and following testing were found to be infected by net form of net blotch the most damaging disease in Australian barley crops. The F129L mutation has been widely reported overseas and is known to reduce the effectiveness of Group 11 fungicides. BASF Australia's Ian Francis says it only takes a small change to trigger fungicide resistance. We know there's genetic variability that normally occurs uh, or mutations that normally occur in any fungal population and in this case the mutation is caused by amino acid substitution that ever so slightly changes the disease genome allowing it to be less affected by the fungicide compared to the wild type. So the terminology of F129L is used by researchers to describe the position of substitution within the genome that's just the name we give it, I suppose. Was this quite a surprising discovery? And because it was found randomly, does this make you think it's been around for a little while now? Yeah, so for sure the, the mutation that we discovered was a random event. So it, it feels likely that it may well be more widespread than, than we know. I think the fact that we just haven't been looking for it or screening for it in the past as an industry could indicate that it's wider spread than we think. And what are the potential risks of this mutation for the crops here in Australia? The risk is that we get lower fungicide performance than expected, leading to potential for higher disease levels in the crop. And a higher disease load could then mean further applications are needed or crop losses may be experienced. Where has it mainly been seen in the past? So this is the first time it's been reported in Australia. It's certainly been reported as as reasonably widespread in Europe and other countries around the world. But I guess the interest here is really the fact that we haven't had it reported to exist here in Australia. And what have we learned about managing it and what would your advice be to agronomists and farmers here? Yeah, so really, you know, fungicide resistance is not something new here uh, in Australia. It's something we deal with with other diseases. But 
it is a concern for the industry and certainly a reason why we want to communicate this discovery. But I think with education and promotion of the issue uh, and implementation of plans, we can reduce the impacts of fungicide resistance and allow growers to manage their crops in a sustainable manner. And have you had conversations with any farmers and agronomists here in South Australia about this? Look, the first step in this process is really to try and get the word out to the industry that this mutation has been found and then to really help farmers to take an integrated approach to disease management, not only in South Australia but across all cereal growing regions. Good agronomic practices such as crop rotation, varietal selections, appropriate use of seed treatments and then for sure uh, rotation of fungicide modes of action are all needed. That is BASF Australia, that's the chemical company, BASF Australia and New Zealand Head of Development for Crop Protection, Ian Francis. It is 17 past 12 here on the Country Hour and the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has told grain growers that the independence of Australia's pesticides and veterinary medicines regulator, the APVMA, will be preserved Last month, the board chair and the CEO of the APVMA resigned ahead of the release of a damning review into the regulator. The Clayton Utes Review accused the APVMA of being too cosy with industry and prioritising timeliness over safety when approving new chemicals. Mark Fowler is president of WA Farmers Grains. Mark, you got the chance to ask the minister a direct question about this just recently. What did you ask? The question I asked at the Australian Grains Industry Conference was, I asked the Minister to reassure us that, that this review won't lead to any changes in the, or any erosion in the independence of the APVMA, which is critical to, to our grains and agricultural industries generally, that that independence would remain from both industry, but also from government. Our concern is that if the result of the review was to give any arm of government some say in our chemical regulation, be it the Department of Agriculture or um, the Minister or anyone from within government, that that could lead to the politicisation or make our regulation more vulnerable to public opinion, like what we see in Europe. So you posed that question to the Federal Minister. What was his response? He came back and, and he, he said that he would guarantee that the independence of the APVMA would be preserved. So um, we take some comfort in that, but we'll see how it plays out. But, you know, we were a bit alarmed that um, there was a review which occurred to the in relation to the APVMA quite recently, which was led by Ken Matthews, who's the same guy that's been appointed to do the review following on from the Clayton Utes. Review. He's a he's a, um, a a person who has spent a large part of his career working in the Federal Department of Agriculture. But some of his re- recommendations in the previous review was that the Federal Department would have a role in this space, specifically through the the appointment of a new position, being a commissioner, um, which would have some kind of government influence in relation to chemical regulation. Now we at WA Farmers and by Grain Producers Australia were opposed to that. And our submissions reflected that. And much of the other, uh, our equivalents of the other states had the same view. So even though you got the reassurance from the Federal Agriculture Minister, the person who's heading up this uh, new review that's been launched or triggered as a result of the Clayton Utes review, uh, you're concerned about that. So you'll be following it closely. 
well, we think we might end up with the same recommendations. Yep. And we were opposed to it then and we remain opposed to it now. One of the other concerns here is that the Clayton Utes review found that the authority, the APVMA, uh, which approves you know, products like the weed clearer glyphosate, for example, was taking just years, I mean, in some cases, decades to review chemicals. And of the 10 ongoing chemical reviews, eight have been in progress for over 15 years or more, with seven ongoing for nearly 20 years. That's uh, what Clayton Newt's found. And one of those chemicals is paraquat. So what are your concerns around that being, you know, one of the, the key sort of chemicals that farmers use and that review process for that chemical still hasn't been sorted? We would be very concerned if there were any limitations or uh, any moves to remove uh, either glyphosate or paraquat from our farming system. They're obviously pretty critical in us being able to use uh, minimum till systems, which is absolutely critical to the sustainable operation of our farms particularly with a drying climate, and both glyphosate and paraquat, they, to retain the efficacy of each of them, they, they require each other, in a sense, fundamental to a, our knockdown approach to, to killing weeds is using a double knock where we can, and that ensures that if there's emerging resistance, and there's, there's always a degree of emerging resistance, that you use a different chemistry to, 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 to kill those weeds so that those... Uh, the resistant weeds don't take a hold in, 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 in our crops. But glyphosate isn't one of the chemicals under review, but paraquat is. So there's a, basically a question mark hanging over it. Are you concerned that that assessment process might be sped up or uh, it may be just, you know, said, well, we, we just won't approve this one at this point? I mean, is that the concern with that one still in the review process? Well, I get concerned when I hear rhetoric from the minister that along the lines of uh, suggesting that there's a lot of chemistry that's banned in places like Europe that is available for use in Australia. And the inference there is that somehow our standards are weaker or our regulator is more captured by industry. And we re- absolutely reject that logic. That was we certainly the suggestion, though, within the Clayton Newt's re- review, wasn't that's it? That's right. That's right. And, and that's really concerning to us because in Australia, we, we have fundamentally different rainfall patterns, we have very different runoff scenarios, um, we have very different proximity to population, there's lots of things. And, and the other thing that's really important to remember is that Europe applies a hazard-based approach to chemical regulation and, and the, the, the logic that applies there is, that, if I can give you an analogy, is that they apply the approach like we don't go and swim in the ocean because there's a chance of being bitten by sharks. Now, the risk-based approach spins around the other way and says, well, there's actually probably only one in a million chance of being bitten by a shark. And if we swim in the ocean in the places where there's not many of them and, you know, in the right conditions, we're going to be very safe, so we'll still swim in the ocean. So Australia applies a risk-based approach, as does US, Canada. It's only Europe that applies this hazard-based approach. So Europe has a very different approach to chemical regulation. If there's any risk, they ban it. And they're also very susceptible to public opinion. It's quite a political process and their chemical regulation is not independent of government like it is in Australia. So we think it's absolutely critical to maintain that independence, not just from industry. Look, if there's problems with the APVMA being too close to industry, we we accept that that should be addressed. But equally, we don't want to see the APVMA become subject to political considerations. Mm. That is something that that we would fight very hard against. 
All right. Well, we'll keep tabs on that as that current review progresses. Mark, how's it looking at your place across your properties? Did you get much rain out of this current system? We were, you know, there are smiles here this morning. We, we, we thought we'd largely missed the rain. We had, um, it was supposed to rain all day yesterday and it didn't. And we were thinking, oh dear, we've, we've missed it. But um, no, we had between 20 to 28 mils overnight across our across our farm. So no, very happy this morning. Yeah. And how's the, how are the crops looking? There, there's a range of crops. The early sown crops look fantastic. The latter sown crops, because it got dry and cold, the latter sown crops you know, are a long way behind. So there's a, the full range. Mm. Canola looks really good. Hay looks really good. Yeah. Barley and wheat that was sown later, not as good. It's got a long way to go, but um, we, we continue to get rain, sun and no frost. It'll definitely help. Yeah. And at this point then, is it looking like an average, above average? How are you assessing it? I don't think it's as good as last year, um, although some of the earlier crops will be. Um, but no, on balance in, in my patch, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an above average season. Mm. I don't think it'll be as good as last year and the year before. Good to talk to you, Mark. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Melinda. Mark Fowler, President of WA Farmers Grains and getting some nice rain across his farms. 20 mils, millimetres to 9 o'clock this morning at Williams, 170 kilometres southeast of Perth through to 27 mils at Dudinan, which is just east of Williams. 26 past 12. Well, Mark's not the only one smiling today. There's smiles all round at Gavin Carter's farm at Zantippi, which is around about 280 kilometres northeast of Perth. He's had his first double-digit rainfall recording for the growing season. Uh, we had 10 to 12 mil um, across the farm. And how badly was that needed? I heard from someone who drove through there a few weeks ago saying, geez, it's dry. How dry was it? Yeah, it's probably helped fill the profile a bit. All the rains we'd had up to that point had sort of been around the five mil mark. So it would kind of be enough to keep the crops alive. The last time um, we had that amount was the end of March. So um, we started seeding on that rainfall. Um, and, yeah, since then it's just been the small falls and it's been enough to keep the crops alive. But, um, yeah, there's nothing in the bank really. And this rain probably gives us a little bit for the next few weeks. How much rain have you had for the year? We were at around 100 mils for the growing season before this rainfall. So 40, that was in March. And yes, yeah, since then, it's been um, a pretty dry autumn and winter for us. It hasn't progressed like the last couple of years where we've had the early start and it's kept raining. So it's been probably one of the drier winters we've had for some time. Yeah, it's a real contrast to last year, isn't it? That that rain that you had at the end of March, which you went seeding on, those earlier crops, are they the ones that are looking better and that will really benefit from this 10 or 12 mils that you've had? Yeah, definitely. Um, the early canolas got quite a lot of flowers up. We've got some early barley um, and wheat that are, yeah, looking reasonable and I think that'll allow those earlier crops to push through to something reasonable at harvest Um, and the later ones yeah the mid to late sown crops are still quite away from being anything significant at harvest time but some of the shorter varieties 
that we planted then will go okay. Uh, and the, yeah, the canola that we planted a bit later has still got a little while to go from there. But hopefully we can, yeah, keep getting these reasonable rainfall amounts for another month or so. And I think those later crops will, will still be all right. There's enough there. They just don't have much in the bank at the moment. So really the next few weeks will determine whether or not some of those paddocks or patches within those paddocks that you harvest, you'll, you'll harvest them or not? I think that's right. Yeah, the heavy dirt is probably similar around most of the Shire and to the north of us that the heavy dirt's really struggled to get away this year. So I think even with a decent finish, some of those patches won't be harvested, but I think there will be quite a few of those areas in the lighter land that um, will still have something there, but, yeah, will really benefit from another few weeks of cool weather and a bit of rain. That is Zantippi farmer Gavin Carter speaking to Joe Prendergast. 10 to 12 millimetres at his place, the biggest fall for the growing season and just in time by the sounds of it. Richard Hudson's going to be here in the studio. He'll go through all the rainfall details for you very shortly. And Mike, quick off the mark today on the text saying, Richard, when reading today's rainfall, don't put a minimum on the ones you read out. Every farmer in the Southwest Land Division would like to hear what everyone has had. Please don't do your usual lazy self. Mike, I've got some bad news for you. Uh, lazy Richard Hudson in the studio very shortly. It is half past 12. Not lazy at all. Jonathan Beale is here in the Country Hour studio with the news headlines. Thanks, Belinda. Federal Liberal MP Linda Reynolds is suing former political staff member Brittany Higgins, who worked in the WA Senator's ministerial office over two social media posts. Senator Reynolds had threatened legal action in July, saying she'd been the target of unwarranted abuse since Ms Higgins publicised rape allegations against former colleague Bruce Lehman. No findings have been made against Mr Lehman, who denies the accusations. In a writ filed to the WA Supreme Court. Senator Reynolds alleges Ms Higgins defamed her in a post on Instagram and on Twitter. The Defence Force says human remains have been found amid the debris of an army helicopter that crashed in North Queensland. The Taipan aircraft came down near Hamilton Island during a training exercise last Friday night. Four people on board the helicopter were killed. The remains were found by a remote-controlled underwater vehicle. And research in Sweden has found artificial intelligence can safely read images from breast cancer screenings. This research, led by a team at Lund University, found AI could spot cancer at a similar rate to that of radiologists. The team says more research is needed to fully understand how AI could be best deployed and whether the technology would be cost effective. More news, Belinda, at one. Jonathan, appreciate that. Thank you very much. 28 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Still to come between now and the news at one. Now, you may have heard this news that Insitec Pivot is trying to sell off its Australian fertiliser business and the preferred buyer is Indonesia's partly state-owned Pupak Keltum. Shortly, you'll hear how the market has reacted to the possibility of that deal going ahead. Also, why some milk is apparently healthier than other milk. And that research done here in WA's southwest 
with a, a series of dairy farms. We'll take a closer look at that research and also head to Mount Barker for the results of today's cattle sale. Right now, it's off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Joey Rawson with you this afternoon. Joey, let's start in the Southwest Land Division. How are conditions today? A bit of rain still about, I imagine. Yeah, a little bit of shower activity through the Southwest Land Division, and we have had a couple of light flurries on Bluff Knoll this morning. Um, so we've had this uh, cold front that's basically moved over the state or moving over the state right now. It kind of stretches from around Onslow right through to the Eucla or the Eucla coast. Uh, so there is rain coming out of that and, and it spins around into a, a low pressure system to the south of the state. So um, through places like Esperance, um, we're still getting some quite good falls as you know, that low pressure system drives rainfall through the southeast and that is all kind of just on an easing trend and moving out to the east and uh, we're starting to see a stabilising type pattern, you know, through kind of the western districts of the southwest land division. So, um, but yeah, fair bit of rain as everyone's probably noticed, you know, getting up to, you know, nearly 100 millimetres at some locations over the last 24 hours, Belinda. Yeah, there has been a bit about, um, you know, as always, some people miss out who really need it, but there has been some who've been desperate and got a little drop. What's ahead for uh, Friday, the weekend and the new week, Joey? Yeah, yeah. So um, as far as rainfall goes, a lot of the rain will be confined uh, to the south coast for uh, tomorrow. And then as we move on to Saturday and Sunday, there's only a slight chance of some showers around sort of the Marg River coast on Saturday and also on Sunday. Probably the most important thing for the next, you know, three or so mornings is it's going to be quite cold through, you know, parts of the Great Southern and also the Central Wheat Belt. So temperatures getting to around that zero degree mark. So I, I'm not sure where the crop maturity is whether those uh, cold temperatures or frost may affect crops but it's certainly some cold conditions um, through the next uh, nights and the days will be quite mild for the Southwest Land Division and we do have another front sort of early next week Monday, Tuesday uh, there's not a lot of confidence on the timing but because uh, the models are predicting different times but it's certainly not as strong as the front that we've had um, during the last 24 hours of Blender. And then moving into northern and eastern parts, what can you see? Yeah, so this front has made it to the Pilbara and dropped a little bit of rain through the Pilbara and all through, also through the northern parts of the Gascoigne and, and the south interior. So um, the high pressure system is moving in, so that rain is going to ease during the next sort of 12 hours through the western parts of the Pilbara or the central parts. Um, so what we're getting now will be all we get basically for the next, um, you know, basically four or five days to a week. So um, at least we've had something there. And um, apart from that, um, pretty similar conditions to what we usually get in the north of the state at this time of the year. And then the warnings for this afternoon. Yeah, so we've just got a strong wind warning um, for the south coast or a strong wind warning for the Albany coast and a gale wind warning for the Esperance and Eucla coasts. And we do have a fire weather warning for the south interior with those really strong winds ahead of that cold front as it moves through, Belinda. Joey, thank you so much. Appreciate that. 24 to 1. Mr Lazy is here with the rainfall figures. 
Yeah, just thought I'd bring my usual lazy ass in here to go through the, the rainfall figures. In the northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, no rain recorded at all. In the Pilbara, Onslow and Panawanaka recorded seven. Parabadu, nine. In the Gascoigne, a bit of rain around two. Challa, ten. Q, five. Denham, eight. Durawara, six. Kirkalocka, 20. Mekathara, nine. Mika Station, 19. Mingar Springs and Mount Clare recorded five. Mergu, 15. Ningen Station, 13. Painesfine, 20. Tamala, 18. Three Rivers, six. Jury Creek, eight. Ewan had 14. In the interior, Chukayila topped it with three. In the goldfields, a bit of rain around. Ejidina, 11. Kalgoorlie Boulder, 18. Laverton, 22. Linster, 10. Leonora 9 and Norseman recorded 18. In the Euclid district, Air topped it with 6. And a bit out on some of the islands, Barrow Island had 16 and Thevenard Island 7. And then heaps around in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts. In the Central West, some of these areas in the Central West were very much in need of some rain, so we will have five and above. Alanuka, 21, Arena, 14, Aradale, 17, Bajangara, 14, Bellandine, 12, Berkshire Valley, 6, Bindi Bindi had 5 to 6 mils, Binu 16, Balgada 11, Kanna 16 to 19, Karnamar 8, Chapman Valley 17, Koolangatta had 23 to 27, Karoo 10, Dudawar 19, Eniaba 14, Eriju 26, Arangi Springs 29, Geraldton had 15 to 20 across a number of different locations in that area. Gutha West 20, Irwin House 12, Durian Bay 21, Calberry 16, Lanceland Defence 17, Latham 12, Mindala 6, Minganew had between 9 and 14, Moeskar 24, Morrowa had 13 to 14. So if I do give a range, it means we're getting figures from that area from different rain gauge locations. So Mullawar, this is an example, 17 to 20 mils. Just thought I'd explain that to you, Bill. Uh, Mumby had 21, Nabawar 20, Nambung Station 22, New Norcia 5, on the Abrolhos Islands, North Island recorded 13, Northampton 26, Perenjury 10 to 11, Port Denison 14, Riverside 10, South Homewood 19, Tabletop 14, Tarden Hill 19, Three Springs had 11 to 13, that's another example of that range. Takes a bit of work to uh, combine those together too. Not the usual lazy stuff either, I can tell you. Um, to Braddon had 26, Whalabing 5, Wandana 17, Wiradaji East also recorded 17, Woolgarong 10, Yandanooka 14 and Una recorded 15. In the lower west, I'm sorry Mike, we're going to 20 and above because just about everywhere copped a fair bit of rain. Mandra had 21, Pinjarra had 21 to 25 and Waruna had 35. In the southwest, this isn't going to please Mike at all because there was so much we're going to 60 and above. Above. Boyne up north had 65, Bunbury 79, Dardanup had 64 to 79, Donnybrook 58 to 70, Ferguson Valley 73, Harvey 68, Hentybrook 65, Kirup 63, Mile up 70, Newland 60, Pemberton 63 over two days, Ravenscliff Alert Station 62, Thompsonbrook 60, Will Garrup 64, and Wokal up 60. You're sort of getting the picture there was a fair bit of rain in the southwest. In the southern coastal, Lots there as well. We're going to do 40 and above. Denmark had 43. Erinair also 43. Esperance 41. Munglin up 50. 
And then in the central wheat belt, there was much less rain and it was more welcome rain. So we'll actually go back to five and above. Ardith and Babakin both recorded five. So did Balladew. Beacon, nine. Beverly had six to seven mils. Bonnie Rock, 16. Um, and Bonnie Rock's Deepard Station 13, Bullfinch 9, Buntine West 11, Burrican 7, Burracoppin South 5, Dalwellanew had 9, Gabon 5, Goodlands 9 to 11, Duradine 10, Kalani 8, which has been dry, Quarter 6, Monongaran 7, Wetmount Westdale 12, Muckenbooden 5, Noongar 11, Querding and Shackleton recorded 5, Southern Cross 7, Westonia 6, Wyalki 7, Windarling 14, Wongan Hills 5, uh, Woburn 10, Yangadine 7, and Yilgarn South had 7. In the Great Southern, again, there was heaps, so we're going to 30 and above. Badgerb up 37, Boscobel 31, uh, Chaming up 40, Quartering 35, Cranham 35, Darkin 34, Franklin 38, Glenrose 31. Katanning had 33 to 35 across a number of locations. Lake King, 33. Pingaring, 34. Quail up, 46. Tamble up, 30. Wagen had 34. Uh, Wagen's Airport had even more, 40. And then Williams recorded between uh, 26 and 30 mils. So a lot of rain around. So the highest one was uh, 91 at uh, Brunswick Junction at the Deep Herd station there. Thanks, Richard. 18 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Off to Mount Barker just before the news at 1, going through the yarding and the prices at the cattle sale today. That'll be interesting because last week there was a bit of maintenance going on at Mount Barker, so there was no sale. So we'll see what happened this afternoon, uh, well, this morning when the sale was on, and Tracy Kilner along shortly with those details. First, though, Murdoch University scientists are keen to do more research to figure out why some milk is healthier than others. Associate Professor Dr Vicky Sola says they've done some research on milk produced on six farms in Western Australia's southwest, and one in particular stood out. She says an independent dairy operation, Bannister Downs at Northcliffe, had a higher nutritional value than the others. We wanted to look at how the milks differ in their nutrients. When we started looking at the B vitamins, then we found that you know, Bannister Downs has the highest level of B12, a really important essential nutrient. And things like calcium, so Bannister Downs was in the top two for calcium. So minerals are important too. Other things we looked at were things like the proteins and we found that Bannister Downs was really high in lactoferrin, um, which is a, a protein that's anti-cancer, helps with the absorption of iron, it's anti-inflammatory. And the research is just coming out on lactoferrin to say how important it is, is in the diet. Why do you think the milk from Bannister Downs is different? We know they're different, um, but we don't really know why. We suspect it's that the cows don't produce a huge volume per day. That's how they manage the cow's health and, and the milk quality and things like that. So that could be a factor. So the low, slow pasteurisation is, is certainly a factor in protein, but we still have more work to do to kind of try and find out the why these milks are different. What else did you find when comparing the milk from the different WA dairies? On the packaging, it tells you how much protein, how much of all the ingredients that are listed, and all the milks are very similar. But the, when you drill down into 
other things like vitamins and minerals and proteins and fatty acids, they're very different. It's very interesting and we've got a, a lot more work to do. We're publishing. We've got two papers just about ready to be published. So hopefully that'll support the milk story. Dr. Vicky Soller, Associate Professor at Murdoch University. Sue Daubney is the Managing Director of Bannister Downs Dairy. She agrees with Dr. Soller that there are probably a few reasons why their milk is higher in certain vitamins and minerals than other farms in WA's southwest. We do a lower temperature of pasteurisation um, and so we understand that's less damaging to enzymes and proteins and we think that has an influence on it. Um, But also if we go back to our cows, the herd are actually not pushed to produce high volumes, so their average daily production will be between 25 and 30 litres, whereas some cows that are totally production pushed could be up around 60 litres, which is good for the farmer because they're getting high volume, or as we haven't been short of milk, so we haven't been pushing our cows hard, um, and we're thinking that could be one of the reasons, but it's going to take a while to get to the bottom of of why our milk is naturally so good. The Daubneys run one of the largest dairy herds in WA, with most cows milked robotically. She thinks that could be one reason why their milk is so nutritional, and that's caught the attention of customers from overseas. Yeah, we have two dairies. One is a conventional 90-stand dairy, um, which is coming up to its probably 25th birthday so it's um it's certainly done a lot of work um and then as part of the creamery facility we built a delevel amr robotic dairy um and that's all based around the cows coming in voluntarily when they like there's massage brushes and feed parlors and all sorts of things to incentivize them and I can tell you out there, the most confident spoilt cows you could come across. And you think they'd be flighty because people aren't handling them as much, but they're actually much more contented and calm and not flighty. And we can only put it down to because they're females and they're doing it on their own terms. And that keeps them very happy. And so how many do you have? Uh, all up, there's coming up to around 5,000 cows on the property at the moment, um, but actually milking, like in lactation, um, it fluctuates from about 1,400 to 1,600. And how much milk's coming out of here every day? <laughs> um, it, it, it's around 25 to 30,000 litres a day at the moment of, of farm, like raw milk at farm level, yeah. And so you process and package it all here and then it goes straight to the supermarkets? Yeah, we um, so literally the cow, we'll milk the cows this morning, we will process, fill and send it off by truck tonight and it will be delivered into Coles and Woolworths Distribution Centre tonight. Also, when we finally get our export channels up and running, um, we can deliver to them tonight and then with our own distribution fleet in Bibber Lake and Donnybrook, um, we have daily deliveries going out direct to all independent supermarkets and lots of wonderful cafes and restaurants. So it's it's within Australia at the moment, but you have plans to export internationally, is that right? Yes, we've been ready to export for quite a while. We've had a customer absolutely clawing at the ground to get the product and we've just been going through a very convoluted approval process thanks to regulation. (laughs) When do you you see that being a reality? Um, Last month. (laughs) 
uh, any day. Like we just, uh, there's just always more questions, and we provide more answers, and we just keep trying to push it through. It'll just be really sad if we lose this trade opportunity because of the timeframes and complexities involved. But I understand that you know, there's food safety is a really serious thing, and we have to make sure that we've got that covered off. Um, it's just such a drawn-out process to get these approvals through. Sue Daubney, Managing Director of Bannister Downs Dairy in WA's Southwest. You can read more of Ali Honeybone's story. It's on the ABC Rural website now. Search Dairy Study ABC and you'll find Ali's story. Dairy Study ABC. 11 minutes to one. The Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Western Australia's Pilbara region could soon have a $100 million lithium processing plant. Lithium miner Pilbara Minerals and environmental technology company Calix Limited have announced final investment approval for the pilot plant they want to build 100 kilometres south of Port Hedland. Calix CEO Phil Hodgson is excited because they plan to produce 3,000 tonnes of lithium phosphate, which is used in electric vehicle batteries. Absolutely, no, very pleased to finally get there on this particular announcement. It's been nearly two years uh, to get to this point, but uh, obviously both companies and both companies' boards confident uh, with respect to this particular project to build a midstream lithium salt production facility in the Pilbara there. Uh, So, yeah, very exciting announcement today. So the final investment decision, which essentially means that this midstream demonstration plant will be being built, will go ahead, what exactly will it involve? The project itself will involve construction of a plant capable of accepting up to sort of 30,000 tonnes of what's called a a spodumene concentrate, which is... uh, Spodumene is what's uh, Pilbara Minerals mine and is the source of the most of the world's uh, lithium today. And this is where the Calyx technology comes in. We've got a special kiln to heat it up and uh, crack it open uh, without melting other ores that happen to be mixed up with the spodumene. And when we do that, that makes the lithium easily extractable. Uh, and then the, the rest of the plant's all about taking that extracted lithium and turning it into a salt. And in this case, it's what we're calling a lithium phosphate salt. Uh, so we're targeting to produce about 3,000 tonnes a year of that from this plant. Now, at the moment, most of, well, not just Australia's lithium, but most commodities in Australia are typically dug up and, and shipped offshore. And so in this case, it's a midstream level of processing. How important is that for Western Australia? Oh, extremely important. Uh, as you say, a lot of minerals are dug up and sent overseas uh, without processing here without jobs here without any value here and if you look at lithium when you dig up spodumene to make uh, ultimately make lithium for lithium ion batteries what you're shipping offshore if you just ship the spodumene offshore is 94 percent waste so if you can actually concentrate that to a lithium salt here in australia that 94 percent uh, drops significantly uh, and so it's a way to add value out here and have jobs here and all those sorts of things. But if you can do it with renewable energy, it's a way to drop even further the carbon footprint. Will this particular to, uh, plant be using renewable power? This particular plant will use a mix. Uh, so at this stage, Pilbara will have about six megawatts of renewable energy 
uh, and they have conventional energy. As we demonstrate the technology and, and tick that box, then the intention is to expand into a fully renewably powered site. Are you confident of being able to find even the workers to build the plant? Yeah. Um, I think we'll be pretty good there because it's a very interesting project to work on. We've had little difficulty getting top quality engineers into Intercalix Limited, our company, in situations where there's labour shortages and those sorts of things. And, and Pilbara are one of those companies as well. They're, they're highly visionary, willing to take some risks and expand that business, uh, all for a great industry. An industry that's really fueling electric vehicle revolution. And so while there will be challenges and there's competition for labor, I think the combination of both our companies creates a great a great message and a great place to work. So yeah, I'm I'm confident that we'll get the staff we need. Phil Hodgson is the managing director and CEO of Calix Limited, speaking to Michelle Stanley. Seven to one. The financial, farming and political worlds are all watching a potential mega deal to sell Australia's largest fertiliser business. Insight Tech Pivot is working with a preferred buyer for its Australian fertiliser business. And that preferred buyer is Indonesia's partly state-owned Pupak Kaltum. Henry Jen- Jennings is a senior market analyst from the Marcus Today newsletter and says even though it's early days, the market is sceptical. This is a good move by Insatec Pivot. Uh, the idea was that uh, with uh, the separation, it would allow the explosives business to uh, sort of, well, I guess, explode to the upside and not be uh, not be hampered. But the problem the market has had is that they thought that two and two uh, does make five in some respects, and there has been a sort of uh, a critical mass uh, issue that if you separate the businesses, then maybe you're not going to get the critical mass that you need, and they will be too small. And now we've seen that Indonesians are looking at uh, taking over the fertilizer business. About one and a half billion is potentially a play there, which does seem to be a little bit more positive rather than uh, demerging or floating it off, so actually selling the business could be a little bit more positive as far as the share price goes, which has rallied off its lows in June during tax loss selling. But the reaction to it wasn't exactly stunning yesterday, uh, given the market as well has been pretty weak across the board. I guess it held up, if nothing else. But uh, as such, the, the market was somewhat sceptical that uh, a demerger or a sale would uh, would sort of create uh, enough of an opportunity, but uh, this at least is a, is a sale rather than just uh, floating it off and separating the two companies because the market was worried that one and one actually made, made one and a half, not two. Does the sale to an Indonesian powerhouse in terms of fertilisers, that would need foreign investment review board approval. Would, would the market be factoring that in in terms of how cautious it is being about a sale at the moment? Yeah, and let, let's face it, you know, the, the sale of our, our biggest fertiliser uh, maker would uh, create uh, an FIRB issue, and certainly, it's you could argue that it's a, a national strategic interest to have control over that. So, um, certainly, it would be um, something that the Albanese government would look at very seriously, I guess, in terms of uh, ownership structure of this one. So, uh, it's not done and dusted by any stretch of the imagination. I suspect that's why it's you know the the initial deal to do this to separate the businesses and uh, there wasn't a huge amount of interest in buying the fertilizer business uh, but clearly at the moment there now is uh, a demand for it and it's a sort of a 
you know, it's a $2 billion revenue business uh, and uh, 2 million bucks in earnings in a normal year. So um, it's not inconsiderable, but it, but it does have national strategic importance. So it is going to be uh, a long, tortuous process, I guess, and uh, certainly the government will be involved in it. What should farmers or non-financial market people be watching for as this sale process, as opposed to a demerger process, goes continues along? Well, I guess, uh, you know, at the moment we've got uh, one Indonesian group, uh, Pupak uh, Kaltim, I'm not sure if I've got that right, but uh, the one Indonesian group that are interested in the business, this could shake things up and we could see other parties uh, emerge as uh, potential buyers. It may be that local buyers also emerge or we get private equity. So I guess, as they say in Sherlock Holmes, the game could be afoot um, and uh, we could see further people come out of the woodwork that may have been waiting to see how easily and cheaply they could pick up this asset. But certainly, yeah, it's a long way from a done deal. There's a lot of politics at play here. There's a lot of uh, FIRB issues at play here as well. So um, it's quite a long way uh, away from being a done deal. Henry Jennings, he's a senior market analyst from the Marcus Today newsletter, speaking to Warwick Long. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Cash for care. Should older Australians pay a greater share of aged care costs? The chair of the Ukrainian Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee, gravely concerned about allegations of mistreatment of Australians serving in Ukraine's Foreign Legion. And joyful celebrations as newcomers South Africa and Jamaica win their way into the next round of the FIFA Women's World Cup. Those stories and more coming up on The World Today. Two minutes to one. 457 head of cattle sold at the Mount Barker sale yards today. So numbers up about 40 on the last sale, which was a couple of weeks ago. Tracy Kilner has been keeping an eye on the prices. Hi, Tracy. Can you run through the details? Prices fluctuated throughout the sale with quality and demand. Young cattle dominated the yarding, with the yearling steers selling to 374 cents, while lightweight yearling heifers reached 308 cents a kilo. Cows and bulls eased 10 cents, with heavy cows selling to 212 cents, and heavy bulls made up to 210 cents a kilo. Heavyweight wiener steers sold from 334 to 364 cents, medium weights from 310 to 358 cents, and lighter weights returned 362 to 370 cents a kilo. Heavyweight yearling steers sold from 284 to 296 cents, and the lighter weights made from 300 to 374 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers fluctuated with quality, selling for 220 to 280 cents, and the yearlings made from 180 to 272 cents a kilo. Grown steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos returned 282 cents, and grown heifers sold from 208 to 236 cents a kilo. The heavy cows made from 198 to 212 cents, medium weights sold from 160 to 190 cents, and store cows returned 150 to 160 cents a kilo. A large yarding of heavy bulls sold from 172 to 210 cents a kilo. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Tracy, thank you for going through those details. Good to talk to you today. The news is next. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.